0: The Desert Island Discs with Flavia on Capital FM. Fresh hits for Uganda.
1: Welcome to Desert Island Discs. I'm Flavia Tumsime Kabura. And it's a pleasure. Every single Sunday we cast away someone special, someone unique. Sometimes there are stories you can absolutely relate. Other times they're a great nudge for you to get up and do better. Either way, we're inspired. If you've missed any of the past shows, where anywhere you get podcasts. Just search for Capital FM. Uganda. This evening, I'm not sure if my seat will get any warmer because I am interviewing my boss's boss's boss. He's a man who was very pivotal in telling the story of the Bush War that brought the current government, which was then NRA, NRM today. And his interaction with our current president, President Yuri Kaguta Museveni, during the Bush War, probably told a very monumental story of that war, and the perspective of whether it was a revolution or not. We'll get down to that part of the story. Today, he owns and actually runs brands under Radio Africa Group as a director. Radio Africa Group in our nearby Kenya includes KISS 100, Classic 105, Radio Jumbo, The Star Newspapers, among many others. Here in Uganda, Radio Africa Group includes here, where we are, Capital FM Uganda, Beat FM, and KISS FM. You might have guessed it. I do have William Pike. Welcome to Desert Island Discs. You actually used to host this show back in the years, but nonetheless, welcome. I wonder where your story
2: would start. Well, I was born in East Africa, Mm -hmm. because my father was a colonial officer. So I was born in Lindi, which is on the border near Mthwara, on the border with Mozambique. And my father was provincial commissioner, of southern province.
1: Right. i read that about you, but what does a colonial officer
2: mean? Obviously, uh, if you take Tanganyika, as it was then, was a UN-mandated territory, like Palestine, in fact, mm-hmm. which is now in the news. Yeah. Meaning that the UN or the League of Nations right. gave Britain the responsibility of administering the, Tanganyika yeah. after the First World War. Mm-hmm. Was before the First World War, it was a German colony. Mm-hmm. So my father went out there in 1926. It's mm-hmm. a long time ago yeah. when he was a young man. Okay, What it meant was people, I think, mentioned that the colonialists had the tentacles in every corner. Right. But in fact, there were never more than 5,000 people in Tanganyika mm-hmm. Which is less the number of aid workers needed um, today. Mm. So it was a very small number of people Mm. and that included you know, pest control officers and all those kind of people. Right. So in my father's first when he went there in nineteen twenty six, he went up the road with an Asian trader Mm. in lorry, was dropped at the uh, on the main road. Right. And they walked, and then the person who was leaving that post, the assistant district officer, Uh met him at the side of the road with porters. Okay. My father walked for a week to get to the place that he was going to, and then he ran a sort of area that was, say, as big as Buganda Mm. on his own, and he was the magistrate district officer. He did everything. Wow. And there was... The only white men mm. were five miles away. They were German Lutheran missionaries. Mm. So he was basically on his own for four years. Wow. And there was no cars. So he would go off on safari on foot to hold to be the, the magistrate right. or meetings or whatever, mm. or to have court sessions, all in Swahili. Oh. He lived in very basic conditions. Right. There's a, a assumption that colonial officers are living in <laughs> We're great We're living lavishly, wealth, right. But it, not at all. What's basic, though? Well, I've got a picture of my father standing next to a car that he had later, maybe 10 years later. Yeah. And there's an Ascari with a fez standing mm. behind him. The Ascari is much smarter than my father. <laughs> Because my father is wearing a baggy old jumper and baggy shorts right. and kind of knee-length socks. Yeah, they did very basic conditions. Right. Mm. So you're born to
1: him. What year is this?
2: 1952.
1: 52. You're the first. Yes. Mm-hmm. So at yeah. this point, he's in well Tanganyika today, Tanzania. So when you're growing up to let's say understand anything around you, what's life like?
2: Well, life was very good. As mm. but uh, but most very ki- good. Okay. But, uh, most most children have positive memories of, of their, their childhood, childhood because their parents take care of everything or should <laughs> take care of
1: everything. Right. Are you saying that um, in hindsight, or later on in life when you realize? No,
2: yes, later on having right. grandkids myself. Yeah, but I went back in 1982. I went back to work as a freelance journalist. Mm-hmm. In Tanzania, as it is now, yeah. and I remembered from my childhood mm-hmm. Dar es Salaam as is a glittering white city, and I was not expecting to come to a grimy, dirty city.
1: Right. Things it's, had changed. or oh, was it your perspective nin- that had changed?
2: No, no, that was 1982. That mm-hmm. was probably the low point mm-hmm. of Tanzania in terms of the economy. So I think since then, it's been on the up. Yes.
1: Rarely do I get a guest who describes their childhood as perfect or very good.
2: Uh, good it, is a stretch. My, 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 my first shock, mm-hmm. big shock in life, was moving back to England. Shock? Yes. <laughs> okay, it was negative. I didn't, didn't like yeah. it. Why? Well, I, I much preferred East Africa. Mm-hmm. People were friendlier. Life was better. It was warmer. Mm. Oh yeah. Whereas That's in England, everyone was cold and nasty. And so was the weather. <laughs> and so was the weather.
1: <laughs> right. So England was different for you, but you're also Irish.
2: My father was Irish. My mother was Scottish.
1: Do you have any ties to that end of, of life? The, no, Irish? I don't
2: have many ties to Scotland, but I do okay. have some ties to Ireland. To Ireland. And we used to go on a holiday at Ireland. Okay. Until my mother decided it was too wet. Okay. And she wanted to go on holiday in France.
1: Okay. But we used to to go
2: for Christmas in Ireland. Yeah. Until I moved to East Africa in 1986, which is when I came to Uganda.
1: Yeah. I I get being um, born here and sort of growing up here, but was there something in your mind that said this was going to be home forever? Because it clearly is home forever for you now.
0: No, I, I can
2: remember after moving to Uganda thinking that I don't want to be anywhere else. Oh. As it is now, I'm in Nairobi, but I'm Mm. sort of... I was born in Tanzania and I live in Nairobi. Yeah, You know, my formative years, as they were, were in Uganda. Uganda.
1: I want to hear your first song choice before I then get to know how you sort of build up to the life that comes to here.
2: I think since I've been talking about East Africa, I really like Tarab music. I don't Mm. know if people know Tarab. So my first song would be um, Dada, by Juma Matano, which is Mombasa Tarab. Mm-hmm. It's a bit different to Zanzibari or Tanzanian Tarab, but it's East Africa.
1: I'm, I'm not quite sure if anybody has ever described the different Tarab music choices. That's
3: great. <laughs> Oni oh, kwambie eufanye je mashaori, mi 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 ni kupenda ye. ni soku wana dada oh dada oh dada dada waniangai. Sabiri siusi ku simtana, o simtana zinishi tafaguri naumi abudi qua wakonzi wamanga kuri dada o oh dada o oh dada dada wanya. Sara, oh bu Sara, lolote mjani shakiri, mja ni moye subira, na mimini tasubiri, dada, oh dada, oh dada, dada.
0: Desert Island Discs with Flavia on Capital FM, fresh hits for Uganda.
1: It's Desert Island Discs. I have the director for Radio Africa Group Limited, William Pike. Let's talk about you then coming to Uganda. A lot of people might know your story, even, of course, as an author, you've written a book about your years with the NRA, the now the NRM. Most people might think you came off the plane straight into the war zones <laughs> with Museveni. But there's a building up to what then became your story here in Uganda.
2: Well, I, m- I mentioned earlier on that I went in 1982 to work as a journalist, yes. a freelance journalist in Tanzania. But it was very depressing. Everything was very disorganized. Mm-hmm. Probably the, the, lowest the lowest point, point yeah. of Tanzania but I came back and I was doing a masters at the School of Oriental and African Studies mm-hmm. in London, and in, in a tea room, I met Ben Matogo, mm-hmm. who was a Ugandan, who was then the London representative of the Museveni guerrillas, who at that stage but were called so? Popular Resistance Army, yeah. not National Resistance Army. And I became friendly with him. Mm-hmm. And to cut a long story short, he arranged with Iria Katagaya Mm -hmm. for me to go to the bush in 1984. And that led to me becoming the editor of New Vision for 20 years.
1: What did you expect coming to that interview? Because you were coming to interview now President Yuri Museveni. Did you have any expectations?
2: I had high expectations. It was probably the most intense experience of my life. Right. So interviewing President Museveni was just part of that. Because it may sound difficult for people to imagine, Mm -hmm. but the NRA in the Bush was incredibly organized. And very disciplined, and people had nothing. That's one of the issues I had with recent depictions of the NRAs wearing combat outfits. Mm. These guys, I meant them all. They were dressed in rags. Literally, mm-hmm. one of the few people who had a new combat uniform was Museveni himself. You know, many of them didn't have proper boots. Many of them didn't have uh, rifles. Kale Kayohura was escorting me, Mm. but he didn't have a rifle. And he would say to some of these young Baganda boys, if you're tired, I can carry your rifle. (laughs) Oh, wow. Because, you know, it was prestigious to have a rifle. Yes. So the whole thing was very impressive. Mm. The was impressive.
1: 'Cause he wasn't President Museveni at the time, it was just Guta Museveni. But he
2: was Chairman of the High Command. Yes. The line at the time was if they took power mm-hmm. which after I left the Bush, after two weeks there, mm-hmm. I was convinced that they would take power. Right. It was to me it was obvious the was writing clear. was on the war. Mm-hmm. But the first time anyone ever said that Museveni should be president mm-hmm. was in um I remember after the coup where a boat was toppled near Kalos Tokova in July 85, I was driving a Ria Katagaya who was staying at my house in London to the airport and I did a tape-recorded interview with him as I was driving him to the airport and he said why shouldn't the be president, he's done more for the country than anyone else. And that was the first time I'd ever heard anyone in the NRM saying that Museveni should be president. Wow. So, yeah, I spent two days talking to Museveni, and he was a very impressive, intelligent, thoughtful, Mm -hmm. intellectual person. But the whole outfit, the whole thing was very impressive. You know, people were really risking their lives. It was very, Mm -hmm. very dangerous.
1: You mentioned, and quite a
2: few of the people right. I met yeah. were didn't survive. They died, you know, before the war was over.
1: You mentioned um, in an interview in the past that even Salim Saleh, who's uh, brother to the president today, that he wasn't sure if it was a revolution or to term it as a revolution. What would it be then if it wasn't a revolution?
2: Well, it it could be an insurrection yeah. or something like yeah. that. But that's actually how I start my book mm. because in 1985, I went back to the bush. But by that stage, Western Uganda was liberated yeah. and people had cars. And mm. actually, I was somehow disappointed because that burning fire of idealism mm-hmm. that was present in
1: Luero, yeah. where
2: people sat around fires, mm. campfires at night, Talking about how a future Uganda should Could look. Be, yeah. It was to some extent dissipated. Mm. And, you know, people were li- living, driving cars, they were getting money, they were leading more comfortable lives generally. Mm-hmm. I was with Saleh and we were driving somewhere, and he said, Is this a revolution? You know, he's, he himself was wondering like what was going on. Wondering whether
1: this was it, yeah.
2: And the conclusion I had come to. In the mm-hmm. book, is, it was a revolution, right. but it was not a revolution in the sense of the French Revolution, where everyone's, they cut the heads off the elite. Mm-hmm. A socialist revolution, it was more of a middle class revolution, right. where rights and systems were reestablished, mm-hmm. like the 1848 revolutions in Europe.
1: Right. Being a journalist is about, you know, you, both sides, you listen to a story and you pick out what's best to... Sort of front, how do you tell a story for such times? I mean, I get interviewing someone like Museveni. he's intelligent, he's great. You can see what's going on, you're describing it to us. but how do you start to form a story that because there's biases is what you're seeing or what you feel and what you think. but how do you tell a story unbiased at that time?
2: Well, first of all, you have to remember that in those days there was no iPhones or social androids or, or Samsung yeah. or social media. It w- everything was through print newspapers, to some extent through TV. Right. So, because all the notes and tapes I'd got, I'd tape-recorded my interviews mm-hmm. with seventy mm-hmm. and some other other people. Right. They were a real hot potatoes, so they had to be smuggled to Kenya. Oh. So, I didn't leave with those oh. because it was too dangerous. I mean, I'd have definitely been executed. Yeah. If I was found with those items, mm-hmm. so Doctor Mnkumbi, who later became Minister of Health, mm-hmm. smuggled them, drove them to Nairobi, and gave them to Katagaya, who put them on DHL and sent them to England. So there was something like a wait of three or four weeks before you got what before you I got the the tapes, the tapes and yeah. my notes,
1: even your notes and even my
2: notes, but wow. I gave them to uh, to be taken out. So there's time lags it's it's different to today Mm. secondly no one had seen my for almost three years in the bush so just saying what he said verbatim Mm. was news and then I just described what I saw
1: it was also maybe that there wasn't much opinion flowing back or feedback, as we call it in communication. Because, like you said, there wasn't... I mean, you you, you saw what you saw, you heard what you heard, and you just reported that. There wasn't so much... No, there was a, a lucky thing mm-hmm.
2: that happened to me that made the story very newsworthy. Right. Which, uh, at the time... So, I came out, I think, in July, end of July, eighty four. And in mid-August 1984, a row erupted between the American and the British governments. The American government put out a statement and analysis saying that 150,000 or 160,000 people died in Luero. And the British government put out a counter document saying, nonsense, the most that have died in Luero is 12,000 people. And then I came back and I said if anything, the American estimate is an underestimate. Mm. I would estimate that closer to 300,000 people have been killed. And I myself saw bones of thousands of people, Mm. and I saw thousands of dead bodies in the Luero Triangle, which I I listed in uh, my book, Combatants, which you can get at Aristoc or other bookshops. And the paper, the evidence... Pointed very clearly to the without I list it in my book, yeah. but the it was very clear that the UNLA was responsible for these crimes. It wasn't bias. It was very clear in the circumstances who was right. responsible.
1: You said this is the story that then led me to then work at or for the new vision of course the new vision was a name that later on came up and i heard your story of how you described how that came up and we probably won't go into that what made you prepared to actually do that job because it was a job of you know the new vision of the paper at the time
2: what was that like well I was great for mm. me that's why i went to tanzania in 1982 i wanted to live and work in africa specifically East Africa. East Africa yeah. So getting invited to come and be the editor of New Vision, the government newspaper that was being then being set up. Mm. I think I got the phone call in March 1986 just a month or two after they captured power. It was a dream come true. Mm-hmm. So it was great it was a, and I think it's probably difficult for people to imagine it now when over half the population was born after 1986. But in 1986, there was a real sense, as you said, of the country being rebuilt, Rebuilt, and people really believed in it. And it was a project. There was some corruption, but it was not outrageous corruption. Now I feel there's a lot of cynicism in Uganda. That cynicism didn't exist in '86. People really believed in the future that Uganda was... Could be the greatest country on earth.
1: Did you believe it? Yeah. Okay. Why not?
2: (laughs) Right. And um, the NRM project was very good Mm. at that stage, and there were a lot of people working together Mm. to make you know the country's dreams come true.
1: Right. You also mentioned that there was I would call it less interference, probably not zero interference, (laughs) but less interference from the government, so you could run the paper, as if it was, you know, what you would run today, you know, a business. And so you were allowed that gap to sort of run it and see success versus the points where maybe today you'd have maybe some interference in how you tell stories when you tell them and the business end of it. Was it part of also that freshness because maybe they weren't aware of what they could and couldn't do with the power?
2: I I think uh, it was very liberal at that stage. And our cartoonist at that stage, who was called Snoggy, who went off to become a taxi driver in Los Angeles. Right. And I told him it was pointless. What Why are you odd doing turn that? turn of life. And um, he used to draw pictures of Museveni with a conical head. Like, I think he's got quite a pointed top of his some skull. <laughs> yeah. And Snoggy used to ad- exaggerate that. Right. And then there was some complaints From the man himself or just... No, not from the man himself. (laughs) And then Hope Kevin Jerry, who's then his press secretary, Mm. asked the president, they're doing these cartoons of you with the pointed Mm -hmm. skull. Mm -hmm. Should we get them to stop it or is it okay? I asked her to ask him. Okay. And the message came back, no problem. (laughs) They can do what they want. (laughs) And it was a much more liberal Mm. time, paradoxically.
1: From today. What's your second song choice?
2: My second song choice is uh, something I should clarify, Mm -hmm. which is there's some negative information came out about me that Mm -hmm. said I was nothing but a a taxi driver um, before I became editor Editor, of television. I was a taxi driver, Mm -hmm. but a long time ago in 1976 in uh, Seattle. I did that for six months. And it was... uh, Great experience for me. Mm-hmm. I used to drive at nights. I used to get back about three or four o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. And for people who like movies, have you watched The Big Lebowski? Mm-hmm. no nope. You've never seen The Big Lebowski? No. There's, a, there's a famous comedy movie by the Coe brothers called The Big Lebowski. Yeah. And the main character is called The Dude.
4: right
2: And The Dude is modeled on the person I used to drive a taxi ah. with. So we used to go downtown. Seattle at 5 o'clock but get back at 3 o'clock in the morning Mm -hmm. and I used to listen to Dvořák's New World Symphony Mm -hmm. and which I loved because it was America the land of opportunity that's what this bit of classical music is about Okay,
1: that's your second song choice
0: Desert Island Discs on Capital FM, fresh hits for Uganda.
1: It's Desert Island Discs, and my guest is the director of Radio Africa Group Limited. As of today, he might be stationed out in Kenya, but Uganda is still home. You mentioned that they said you were just a taxi driver who then came to be editor of They Were Right in some way. Was it the six months then
2: straight to Uganda? No, but By the time I came to Uganda, I've been a journalist for nearly yeah. 10 years. What what? And I'd been in it as an I was in different frame.
1: Yeah, were you doing it as what Ugandans call a side hustle?
2: No 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 no. no. (laughs) I I was just frustrated after I left university. I was just right. I felt my life wasn't going anywhere, so I went to America to explore America.
1: Speaking of that, feeling like your life wasn't going anywhere, did you always know that we're going to call it journalism? But did you always know that you would tell stories?
2: No, I used to say at university, there's one thing I will never do. Now, to be a journalist. But I did want to write stories. I wanted to be a writer. Mm -hmm. And then I realized at some point, after I'd been to America, in fact, that I I was not disciplined enough (laughs) to be a successful writer or novelist or poet. So it was better. And what was I good at? I was good at writing. Okay. So therefore, let me become a journalist. So that was in 1978. I became a journalist, so... There's
1: not much discipline for, let's say, a writer who maybe in a year will do one piece of work than a journalist who no, I literally, literally has to...
2: No, but journalists, you have deadlines and routines... Yeah. And you have to get a paper out every week or The system pushes every you, month. whereas... Y- yeah, you know, I whereas get you. the rest you have to you produce have to it out yourself. of your head. <laughs> right. But I always knew I wanted to come back to Africa. Okay. so then And work here and live here.
1: So then you are the editor of The New Vision. And that is going well because, like we're saying, you were, re- you were being rebuilt, right? So it, it was good to kind of work in that time because there's not... Today, would you actually have the same job and no regrets? in today's world, in today's Uganda?
2: I think it would be um, much more difficult today mm-hmm. because I think in 1986, it was everyone was contributing whatever they could contribute right. and salaries were not high. People were not getting rich. People were just doing whatever they could to make Uganda a better place. Mm-hmm. So the capacity was not really there for yes. intense supervision. Mm. People don't realize how difficult life was. HIV was just hitting Uganda in 1986. And I think in the first two years that I was in New Vision, 10% of the staff died of AIDS. Yeah, it's shocking. I also had friends who died of AIDS. Mm -hmm. It was a very tough time. People didn't have a lot. Mm -hmm. People were motivated by idealism at that time. Including uh, the president and everyone else around him. And <laughs> right. I know it's difficult for people to believe today. Right. But that was the reality in 1986.
1: Then, um After that, tell me about the story of building this dream, Capital FM, where we are today.
2: So, in about 1990, something like that, mm-hmm. um, after I've been running New Vision for th- three or four years, um, Patrick Kwaku, who was then the marketing manager for Eastern and Southern Africa for Reuters, came to sell the Reuters new service to the New Vision. Right. Again, people mm-hmm. won't believe this because right. everyone is used to mobile phones now, mm-hmm. having all the data. In those days you had a satellite dish mm-hmm. and a, a printer underneath the satellite dish and the satellite okay. dish was picking Reuters news and it would go ticka ticki ticka 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 the printer and then the stories would print out mm-hmm. and then you'd pick the best news story and from all over the world and then you'd print the best wow. news stories and then they would get typed up and put in the newspaper wow so it was, nothing was digital Looks it cool. was all analog cool. yeah I became friends with Patrick Kwaku, Mm -hmm. and then we decided to start an FM station. In fact, I got the license to start an FM station, then I asked Patrick if he wanted to join join in, Mm -hmm. and he was good at business plans, he had his skill set, so we were partners from that stage. Mm -hmm. And... There was no uh, corruption or anything at that stage. <laughs> right. We got the license for for starting Capital Radio without paying anyone anything. And yeah. um, the Catos got their license to start Sanyu at the same time, I also think, without paying anything. Mm-hmm. Because in those days, corruption was When you say without paying
1: anything, what you mean is like not
2: backdoor payments, you know, you, you would... You didn't pay anything to No, no, there's no backdoor payments at all. Yeah. And there's no corruption involved. We set up the radio. It's launched, I think, Sanyu launched at the beginning of December 1993. We launched at the end of December 1993. We more or less started at the same time. Same time, time, yeah. And, yeah, the rest is history. Uh, I think a turning point was in... um, in the middle of 1994, mm-hmm. we got a consultant from England to come and work with us. That was very good okay. because we got international systems that we still use to run our radio stations. Mm-hmm. And we, we learned best practice for running radios. I was about to say, because there wasn't any experience in that regard. so There wasn't. <laughs> and, and in fact, I think... Capital and Sanyu were the first private FM stations in sub Saharan Africa. So there wasn't just, you're not just talking about Uganda, you're talking about the whole yeah, of Africa. So you were benchmarking
1: on, on really nothing.
2: <laughs> yeah, so we used, that's why it was good to get expertise right. from the UK. It was Australians from the UK who came to help right. us.
1: Aren't you worried at that point that, yes, the Australians from the UK coming here to help me, but then You've noticed obviously over time that you have to tailor a lot of things to Ugandans or to Kenyans. No, or to
2: actually, the opposite is true. Really? Because the rules that apply to Australians and Americans and English people also apply to Ugandans. There's a myth mm-hmm. that Ugandans like, or Baganda, like to hear a lot of talk. Mm-hmm. But it's a myth, actually, people want to hear a lot of music. When they listen to radio, Mm. they don't want to hear people go jabba, 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 (laughs) jabba. For a long, yeah. For a long time. I mean, they want to hear people talk Mm -hmm. about something that's interesting. And when they don't have anything more to say, they keep quiet. Right. So actually, Ugandans are no different to people around the world. We use music testing to find out what songs people want to listen to. We try, as I'm sure you know, Mm. to restrict the amount of talking. (laughs) <laughs> um, etc., 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 these are international systems yeah. that we use, and actually, as you would expect, Ugandans are just members of the human race, so they're really no different. The difference is not that big in terms of radio audience from what they want. Well, but obviously, they want to hear different kinds of music, but it's still music in the 1986, mm-hmm. or when we started. Capital Radio, we're playing a Frigo band or Philly Lutaya. Mm-hmm. Yes. Those songs you wouldn't play, in, obviously, in Australia or, <laughs> of course not. or England. But other, other than that, the systems were Still essentially the same. the same systems.
1: When you're at New Vision, you're working for somebody and... Yes, as much as you're running from a leadership position, it's still not yours. But when you run capital, it's different because this is your business. What, wh- Where are the lessons you know that you're applying for, for well, either? Well,
2: just to, to another point of clarification is for some time, mm-hmm. I overlapped doing both jobs. Yeah. And I told the board of New Vision that I was going to start a radio. Okay. In fact, the managers and board of New Vision You asked why Patrick Kwaku was there. The first option was for New Vision to do it. And the board and um, managers of New Vision declined. To start an FM radio station. They thought it was too risky. At Mm -hmm. the time, they thought it was too risky. So then this plan B was to go with Patrick. Patrick. Mm -hmm. I did it at weekends on Saturdays and Sundays. I'd come here at 7 o'clock in the morning. I'd be at New Vision at 9 o'clock. I'd come back here at lunchtime. Clean. I'd work at, here for an hour or so at lunchtime. Go back, have a sandwich at my desk, mm-hmm. and then go back. And I'd work at New Vision till eight or nine o'clock at night. Mm-hmm. And I'd work both on Saturday and Sunday. Wow! At capital, so I never shortchanged New Vision. And actually, while I was at New Vision, the profits increased year on year, year on year. So, it was very profitable and very successful. That's not a a criticism of the people who are running New Vision today, mm -hmm. because running a newspaper today is much more difficult than running a newspaper 20 years ago.
1: You did both the overlap for how many years, you think?
2: About 12 years.
1: 12 years. Mm. And why stop the overlap? Uh, Well, no, I I stopped
2: working New Vision. Yeah. So, the day I stopped working New Vision, there was no overlap. After a certain period had passed, I went to work in Nairobi. Nairobi, yes. W-
1: what was well, the we transition? started a newspaper yes, called the uh, Star.
2: Uh, the Star. So
1: you had worked here, It had worked as a. Why not start the Star or the newspaper here?
2: Because the envision was my baby. Okay. And I didn't want to compete with it. I didn't want to undermine it. Okay. And I couldn't bear the thought of doing <laughs> anything to hurt That competes Vision.
1: with it. Oh dear. Didn't see that coming. And then Nairobi. So this was your first business or work in Nairobi, right? The star.
2: It's the first time I'd lived in Nairobi. And I lived with Patrick Kwaku for three years. And then I bought a house in Nairobi. Mm-hmm. Then my wife, Kathy Watson, who started Straight Talk, yeah. moved from Uganda to, to, Nairobi. to Nairobi to join me. Mm-hmm. and But I still come back to Uganda every, every month to check on Capital yeah. Radio.
1: The two markets are different very different it shows in our economy and everything we do and even as the people right starting a business here being very successful and then going to start one there because i've most of the stories that are told about how people perceived you and patrick going there to start a newspaper they'd already seen the success that you had with capital for example and your own story with vision it was all almost like a hurry up and wait because they're trying to see if you can apply <laughs> the same success. But you going in you and Patrick, were you hopeful that of course we can replicate
2: success? We've done um, it. So Patrick moved to Kenya, Kenya in 2000, which was seven years or six years before I finished at New Vision, and he started Kiss FM, which was a sensation in Nairobi and very successful. Sort of. In many ways, just replicating the things that were best about Capital Radio in right. Uganda. But it was very successful. Patrick has built up into a big um, radio network. Mm-hmm. With you said Patrick with started, which means it wasn't Patrick and William starting KISS. No, but I was here, you see. I was running New Vision and Capital Radio. Yes. And he, Patrick went to Nairobi to start KISS. Mm-hmm. So, so now we have, uh, I think, six radio stations... Mm-hmm. And something like forty-eight transmitters dotted around the country. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a big, success, most successful radio network in in Kenya. in Kenya. And I think Patrick deserves all the credit for that. Okay. And then he, and any. Called me to start a newspaper. Yeah. It was his idea. Obviously, to start you had a newspaper. the experience. Yes, because <laughs> <I>, after <laughs> I finished working in New Vision, the said, "Why didn't we start a newspaper in in Kenya?" So I went to do that.
1: You're still working. So I'm confused on why you left your baby, Bishop.
2: Ah, well, I left my baby. I, I worked there for 20 years, and 20 years is a long time. Very few people spend longer than 20 years running as the head, of the CEO yeah, right, of right. a business. Mm-hmm. So it was time to move on.
1: Mm-hmm. Did you live on good terms with your boss?
2: Yes, okay. and in fact, he rang rang me about, I haven't spoken to him since I left, but about two or three years ago, Just after my book had come out, he rang to say how much he enjoyed reading the book, and um, it brought back a lot of memories Mm. to him, things he'd forgotten about, the Bush War. He remembered the big picture, Mm -hmm. but he'd forgotten a lot of the little things, my book reminded him of the little things. Yeah.
1: What happens? Is that a phone call to say, hi, I don't want to do this anymore, it's been 20 years, and it's time for me to go do other things? No, it was was
2: actually through the chairman of the board, Mm -hmm. who was then the late Noble Mayombo, who was the Permanent Secretary of Ministry of Defence. And I think by that stage, in all honesty, they were becoming more, they wanted the new vision to play more of a propagandistic role and I believe that the best kind of propaganda was BBC propaganda which is you tell bad things as well as the good things
5: <laughs> okay. rather than
2: rather than voice for America or radio Moscow right. as it was then which tends to be America's the, mm. the greatest country on earth Russia's the greatest country on earth so you... Mix the rough with the smooth, as the <laughs> were, even if you have an agenda. Right. But I think by the time I left, there was a feeling that someone else could put the message across better. Or you weren't playing by the book. No, I was, I was. And I just said to Noble, look, Noble, mm-hmm. if the problem, I'm happy to move on. I mean, I'm working okay. at your pleasure. Mm-hmm. If, if you want to try someone else, try someone else. Yes. And then he said, you know, Thank you. Fine. Yes. Oh. Really? No problem. I said, no problem. Whoa. And so that was we just, it? Yeah, that was it. We at <laughs> uh, the Sheraton. In, uh, in those days, the Sheraton was the meeting the, place. The best place to go. Yeah. We were having tea in the Sheraton. So we just mutual agreement, happy agreement. I okay. was happy to move on.
1: I'll find someone else. Okay, okay. Yeah. Bye and bye. actually,
2: that's, ending. Robert Kapushenko, who's yes. the company secretary, yeah. took over. Wow. And there was no hard feelings at all. It doesn't sound like it, there was. No, there wasn't. There wasn't. And by the way, 20 years is a long time.
1: You mm-hmm, mm-hmm. would have been happy to keep going if that conversation hadn't sort of gone down the way it did.
2: I would have been happy to keep going. But it's also true that after I finished, it was like a weight off my shoulders. Ah, okay. Because it was always a balancing act. Trying to be fair, trying to be reasonable, keep a
1: few people happy.
2: Um, not so much keep people happy, but not offend people right. so much. Right, to be balanced. Mm-hmm. And you know, sometimes we would had to do investigations about people who were buying friends, mm-hmm. and you'd run stories about them, and which they were very angry about. Mm-hmm. So yeah. actually, I was not unhappy to leave. Of twenty years is a long time. Mm-hmm. I want to hear your third song choice before we go into it. Well, my audience. third song choice is probably people in um, Uganda don't know Bob Dillard so much. Oh, we do. But he wrote a song called Changing of the Guard, mm. which, as you f- remember, Museveni famously took over, when he took over power when he became president in January 86, mm. said, this is not a mere changing of the guard. This is a fundamental change. Right. That's what he said. in, And so Bob Dylan wrote a song called Changing of the Guard, mm-hmm. which to some extent to me seemed to have some uh, reflection or relevance in Uganda.
1: I've got the director of Radio Africa Group Limited, uh, William Pike. Um, Anyone who knows Capital Radio will synonymously know the name William Pike. I guess the two go hand in hand. I guess very few people will mention Patrick Kwaku, William. A lot of people probably, you were the front face for the business. Unless people were quite involved in Capital FM for a long time, they would probably put Patrick with Sachi. But not necessarily with Capsule FM. But over the years, I've seen the success of Capsule Maybe I'm biased because I've been in it. But there's something there. Interacting with you, I can't really place my finger on it. What makes you different as a leader? Or unique, I guess unique would be.
2: Well, I I wouldn't think I'm unique. Mm -hmm. But I I once asked Patrick, actually, and I agree with him on this. Mm -hmm. What makes success... And he said, hard work.
1: Okay.
2: It's just pure grit. grit." (laughs) I think there's another element. I asked Michael Joseph, who founded Safaricom Safaricom, in um, Kenya, which is now actually the largest company in terms of revenue and profit Mm -hmm. in East Africa. Mm -hmm. What did he think made a successful entrepreneur? By the way, he was a real hard worker. His answer was luck.
4: Hmm.
2: And there's an element of luck. This hard work is not enough because, God knows, uh, many <laughs> Ugandans work very hard. Yeah, I was
1: about to say, because how do you then and then and describe still describe hard poor. Work. Yeah.
2: So there's an element of luck. And I think Michael Joseph's luck was, he started Safaricom, which was the first... Private telecommunication company in Kenya Kenya, competing with Telcom, Mm -hmm. the government company. Mm -hmm. And they crushed it. And within, to say the least. And now it's a huge behemoth. The luck that I had was you know, I used to go back to England every August on holiday and buy CDs. And I'd come back with CDs and I'd listen to CDs. And then I thought, but why can't. Ugandans enjoy CD-quality music, right. free of charge, mm-hmm. and in got the license for a private FM station, mm-hmm. at which time there were no private FM stations in Uganda. Now there's, what, 160, something massive. Yeah. So you can start a private FM station now and you don't make money.
1: Absolutely. Or don't stand out. Or before. you don't
2: stand yeah. out. So the luck... Was being able to get, timing, Mm -hmm. being able to get FM license at a time when there was no other FM stations in the market. But I also put a lot of hard work into it. Yeah, because I see why you would say luck,
1: because you also couldn't have um, maneuvered all the circumstances to just work in your favor. Just luck sometimes just happens. Yeah, you're
2: in the right place at the right time. At the right
1: time. When you say hard work, I've had a lot of guests here say hard work. And like you said, there are lots of Ugandans who work hard, or what their version of hard work is, and they're still not at the place they would like to be. What is hard work? It can't be me showing up every day at 6 a.m. I could do that and still not be hard working. What does hard work
2: look like on your end? In my case, it was basically working from... Seven o'clock in the morning till eight or nine o'clock at night every day.
1: And you're productive every day? Yeah. Throughout the hours?
2: Yes, exactly. But you had to concentrate. Yeah. I mean, that was a lot of work. So after five or six years, Mm -hmm. I started taking Sundays off, but still working on Saturdays. So hard work is hard work. Mm If it was easy to be rich... (laughs) Everyone would be... Everyone in the world would be rich. (laughs) Right, right. So first of all, you have to have an idea. That's your luck. Mm. You have to have some unique selling point, something you can do that's special. Right. Then you have to have a little bit of money to invest in it. So I put... That's honest. (laughs) Yeah, but I put all my... uh, And Patrick put all his his savings. Mm -hmm. We both put all of our savings into Capital Radio... Mm. Which was at that time about twenty. We each put about I think twenty five thousand dollars in. That was in nineteen ninety four, which is more than it is today, but not a lot of money. Because it wouldn't do much today. And we worked free of charge. We both worked for one year free of charge without oh, salary. Okay. Then we got friends, the late Ezra Bunyanese and various other people, Hannington Karahanga, other people to be investors, and then we got a loan from. DFCU bank.
1: Was this gradual? Because this wasn't at the beginning. This
2: was at the beginning to start with. Mm -hmm. That's how we got started. Oh, wow.
1: Years ago, I was watching an interview and someone said that the one thing they know about and I think it must have been said by uh, Salim Saleh, that... One thing they know about you is that you're very honest. I think they said brutally honest. You don't sugarcoat <laughs> anything. And I don't know if that has gotten you in trouble over the years because you're in a space that is either very political or very sensitive, you know, communication or media. Um, over the years, isn't uh, clearly you don't care. You still tell the truth. But is there a point where you felt maybe I should bite my tongue on some things?
2: I am pretty honest I don't like lying. I'm not very good at lying. Okay. <laughs> but I, I. if something is going to cause me problems, I keep my mouth shut. Okay. So you'd rather but, not
1: say anything than say a lie.
2: Yes. and But also there's been a rumor that I was an MI6 agent. It's been around, <laughs> comes and goes. But my the late John... Would you G- tell us if you were? <laughs> well, uh, the late John Nagenda, who was my friend, yeah. said... Pike, an intelligence agent, impossible. He cannot keep a secret. <laughs> so yeah. it's there's an element of truth in that. I also am uh, a fairly open person. Hmm. And I try never to tell a lie. And you've kept that up for all the years? Just more or less.
1: More or less. <laughs>
2: Except when my <laughs> wife says, do you like this shirt? Ooh. Oh, it's a lovely shirt. Ooh. And actually, maybe you don't like the shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Over the years, you can tell when you're lying, though, right? No? Well, that's a good question.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes they can see right through you. Yes, probably, yeah, probably. Yeah. Um, you've hinted about that, um, or you've actually spoken about it. You're a husband and a dad. You have two children. And your wife, you said straight talk. Straight talk is actually right next to us. Right next to us. Right next it, to
2: us and actually, and when you talk about business mistakes, mm-hmm. I wish Capital Radio had bought that building.
1: Oh, right next
2: <laughs> Right next Why? to this pod. I just think it would have been a, have been a good investment. Mm. But I remember saying to Cathy, Cathy, you've got to buy this building.
1: Right next to it. It'll
2: be great for straight talk.
1: I actually don't remember what it looked like before, Straight Talk.
2: It was sort of similar to this building, but they put a new facade on it. Right,
1: right. Okay, so you're happy about it. It was a business mistake for you, but it was good for her. It was good for her (laughs) and good for
2: Straight Talk.
1: Good for Straight Talk as well. Okay, yeah, um, I want to hear your next song choice, your fourth.
2: My next song choice is, as you've mentioned earlier on, my father was Irish, so I've got an Irish side to me. So I think I should play an Irish song. Okay. So this song is called um, The Cliffs of Dunene by Christy Moore, okay. who's a great Irish folk singer. <coughs>
6: Fall. Far away are the mountains Far away are the fall But of all the fine places That I've ever been Oh, there's none to compare with The cliffs of It's a nice place to be on a fine summer's day, watching all the wild flowers that ne'er do decay. All the hare and lofty pheasants are plain to be seen, making homes for their young round the cliff. Duty. Take a view of the mountains, find sights you'll see there. You'll see the high rocky mountains on the west coast of Clare, or the towns of Kilkee and Kilrush can be seen. From the high rocky slopes Of the cliffs of Dunin Fare thee well to name, Fare thee well for a boy And to all the fine people I'm leaving behind To the streams and the meadows where late all you have been, and the high rocky slopes of the
0: Cliffs of Moony. Desert Island Discs on Capital FM. Fresh hits for Uganda.
1: It's Desert Island Disc in our final part. We have the director of Radio Africa Group Limited. That thing when they say your boss's boss's boss, is boss, is boss. <laughs> uh, William Pike. So you're now based out of Kenya. You're here once in a while. We rarely see you. <laughs> but is why the choice to invest heavily there not here? I think we're promising mission um, as well.
2: Um, it was it was just accident. I always planned to settle and live out my life in Uganda. Uganda, yeah. But after I finished working at New Vision, I was planning to just keep on working at Capital Radio. But Patrick said, come and start a newspaper (laughs) in Kenya. And as you alluded to earlier, Kenya is a much bigger economy than
1: Uganda.
2: Uganda, And it sort of tends to suck people in. Mm. So somehow it sucked me in. It did,
1: clearly, because how many radio stations later and... Newspapers, I can see why you're staying there. But you've expanded here as well. Um, years later, but you've decided to add an, uh, another radio station to the we two that were currently existing. Yeah, we
2: bought, I think, uh, Beta FM in 2005 yes. yeah. from Halima and Damakula, who was yeah. a songstress at the mm. time. And her son, Hemdi, yeah. who yeah. I was still friends with on Instagram. Yeah. And then we started Kiss FM last year.
1: Yeah. And this sounds strategic to me because there wasn't a Luganda side or heavily Luganda side to Capsule FM.
2: And we wanted to have a youth station as well, which, which is, is where KFM
1: comes. It should be. I'm counting about four or three decades of you working, the hard work, the grit that you're saying.
2: I'm 71 now. Less. So. So. <laughs> um,
1: four or five uh, decades, then.
2: Yeah. Uh, so well, I, but I, I would say I've only worked really hard. Mm-hmm. Since 1978. Okay. So that's 45 years of hard work. Yeah, so but I'm right. now I'm trying to wind down a bit.
1: Yeah. Is there retirement for you?
2: I I would sort of like to be... Uh, no, I, I don't want to do the donkey work. I really like to meet Capital <laughs> okay. Radio, where Peter Mungoma Does all the hard work. Does the donkey work, <laughs> right. really. He's the general manager, the <laughs> yeah. chief executive. Yeah. And then I come and say... Uh, I like you doing that. I don't like you doing that. Right. But you're
1: still doing donkey work in Kenya.
2: I am doing donkey work in Kenya, but I I would like to stop doing the donkey work.
1: Right. You talked about business mistakes, but I I kind of want four decades later, what you've learned, the good or bad, since you said you're someone who believes you can tell the good, you can tell the bad. Just,
2: you know, a bit of both. I was recently reading a book by someone called Mark Andreessen, who's a big Silicon Valley investor. Mm. And when he, he says that what he looks for is um, people, product, price, mm-hmm. that way. So the first thing he looks at is have you built a good team? Okay, the second people. thing is the product. Mm-hmm. The third thing is the profit or the price. the price. I think what I've learned is it's really important to get a good team of people. Right. As Mark Andreessen says, that's more important Well, product is important, but the most important thing is is the people, people. right? And then to some extent, if you have good people, Mm -hmm. you'll get a good product. And if you've got a good product, you'll get a good good profit or price. Mm
1: -hmm. Wow. And I've said it over the years of working at Capital that I've worked everywhere else and I've not, well, not everywhere else, I exaggerate, but I've worked in different places and there's something about that. You've just read that book. Yes. But there's something that's about that. People, of course, the product. Product profit. <laughs> yeah. But the people part, you've somehow got it down to the T. I don't know if that was intentional, but you have. No,
2: I, I think it's not. It's, it's somehow intentional. Okay. In the sense that if you find good people, you don't want to lose good people. Right. We had, I mean, there was a great team at uh, New Vision. I was really happy that New Vision continued to prosper mm-hmm. after I left. Right. Because that meant we built a good team. Yeah. And I'm also proud of the team at, at uh, Capital Radio. Yeah. There's also very good people here. You know that.
1: Yeah. But you and see, you can have good people. But like, as you know, different people get good people. Don't maintain good people. It's something it takes for you to, to keep people. You can keep product because it's, it's your product.
2: Well, I think <laughs> it's, it's giving people responsibility, mm-hmm. allowing them to do their work mm-hmm. properly.
1: Okay, most of the things that end up being great are simple. <laughs> you just said allowing them to do the what they're supposed to do. Um, you've talked about that: people, product, and price. I still haven't heard repeating
2: people. people, product, and profit. People I said pro- price originally. But so let's profit it's people, final. product,
1: and profit. But I still haven't heard what, in hindsight, you look at and say could have done differently, whether it's here or the new vision or in life in
2: general. I'm very happy with how things went after I came to Africa. Mm-hmm. I think, I know there's a lot of young people in Kenya, mm-hmm. and the only thing I really regret is when I was at university and that kind of youth time, yeah. I worry too much about what other people thought. Right. And just, just do your own thing. Mm-hmm. Be proud of who you are. Don't try and do things to fit in with other people. I mean, obviously, you have to be polite. You need friends and all that. And if you're youthful, but you're it, but and peers, you need peers. Yes, to, yeah. but, but don't feel that you have to right. betray yourself to be friends with, with X, people. Y, or Z. Mm. It's not necessary. So, the only thing I really regret is not being willing just to do my own thing when I was younger, mm-hmm. you know, to fit in with the crowd. Right. And sometimes you don't approve of what the crowd is doing, but you feel you, you should to. do it yeah. because everyone else is doing, doing it. it. I
1: think you just spoke to every single person. <laughs> that was quite good. And I love that that's what um, we're ending with. What's your final song choice?
2: Well, obviously, I have to have a Ugandan song. Of course. And I always fly Uganda Airlines do you? from Nairobi to Kampala. I can highly recommend anyone who wants to go to Nairobi to use Uganda Airlines okay. because it's always reliable and on time. Okay. And I like Uganda Airlines a lot, but oh. it irritates me. Right. They play Bob Marley and Kenny G and other With kinds. With all the music of, we have. Why didn't they play Ugandan music? And why do not they play a Frigo band? mm which is quintessentially Ugandan, especially for older people like myself. Yes. Identity. And so I'd <laughs> like to end up by playing Decade" by a Frigo band.
1: Thank you for your time, William Pike.
2: It's been a pleasure. <laughs>
0: On Capital FM, fresh hits for Uganda.